0: warning, we cannot have a meaningful revolution without humor. Every time we see the left or any group trying to move forward politically in a radical way, when they're humorless, they fail. That's bell hooks.
1: Hello, everybody and welcome to the seriously wrong podcast yeah welcome to the show did you know that the average person swallows eight seriously wrong podcasts per year in their sleep uh yeah
0: oh cool you're really knowledgeable i mean i'm the one who goes around putting the podcast near people's mouths that was you yeah, it's kind of like a tooth fairy Santa Claus type thing, like I travel the world. Well, you know, you host a podcast with someone for a
1: long time and still learn new things every time we record. I think I might be driving up that average, though, because I eat
0: 10,000 per day. Well, they're tasty podcasts, I don't.
1: Know. I can't say I blame you. I was thinking about actually branching out and starting to eat books in my sleep, and I was thinking I would start with the book Comedy
0: Against Work, Utopian Longing in Dystopian Times by Madeline Lee McKinley. You know, that book, I feel like that might be a daytime, but like eat that one while you're awake. You don't want to be asleep for that. You want to get the fully conscious experience.
1: What's it called when you um, keep on buying books and you intend to eat them, but they just sit up on your shelves and you never eat them?
0: I don't think there's a word for that. It's just (laughs) describing the phenomenon.
1: (laughs) So yeah, this is Seriously Wrong. We Are the Wrong Boys. I'm Sean. I'm Aaron. And today uh, I had a chance to interview Madeline about her book, But before we get to that, we have two matters of important business. The first one is I just want to thank our donor community on Patreon. Uh, You make the show happen. You're a superstar. I really just sincere, deep gratitude. I don't need to tell everybody that there's like bonus episodes and stuff. And
0: I think you do need to tell everyone, so...
1: Okay, fine, everyone, just so you know, we have bonus episodes. We do bonus episodes on the Patreon feed, and actually it's our new Year's resolution. 2023 will be the year of the bonus episode, so it's a great time to sign up because we are going to be churning bad boys out. I know it's been a slow year for bonus episodes in 2022. We looked at the record, we were blown away by it. We couldn't believe that we'd done so few bonus
0: episodes, so yeah. we're going to be rectifying that in 2023. They're going to be funny. they're going to be comedy and because you're buying them on Patreon, they're work for us. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It
1: does take work to do the show, and that's why we appreciate so greatly and sincerely and deeply everyone who decides to take the plunge and and help support us. Uh, The second important (laughs) order of business. I know this is really important to you, Aaron, so I'll let you do the honors of announcing.
0: Oh, sure, yeah. I love announcing. (laughs) You just got to give me a hint (laughs) as to what i'm announcing i totally forgot oh yeah yeah our outfits fit check i am excited to announce that wrong boys fit check
1: everyone so uh open up your wrong boys fit check diary if you want to follow along at home and coordinate your outfits with us while you listen
0: yeah, I hear a lot of people always pause the episode when they get to the fit check, drive to the store, buy any of the similar outfit. Exactly. And
1: then... Uh, Do it with a friend so you have your kind of own Sean and Aaron. This week... In the theme of the episode, I mean, we had to go with a hilarious gut-busting outfit, the kind of outfit that just make you crack up or cry laughing.
0: So that's why we've got the clown noses. Not full clown makeup, but like a touch of clown makeup. From a distance, you'd be like, does that person have clown makeup on? And then you get up close and you'd be like, oh, it's like, it's tasteful. It's not garish like a full clown. But. Yeah, no, no, it's, a,
1: it's a kind of like, you know, when someone is wearing makeup, but they're wearing makeup, like there's like the difference between wearing like outward makeup, like I'm wearing makeup, makeup, and then there's makeup that's meant to like subtly give the appearance of no makeup, right? Right. And that's what we're doing with clowning.
0: Yeah. It's like does their face just look like a clown naturally? Clownish,
1: yeah. And then also on the revolutionary side, obviously we're wearing these Yushenkas. Is Yushenko what I think it is? It's like a hat.
0: Like a like a Russian hat
1: kind of thing. Like
0: it's a Irish. yeah. Oh yeah, that's what we're wearing. He's tur that's the sound of him turning the laptop towards me. <laughs> <laughs> just show me what a Yushenko looks like. Yeah, that's what we're wearing.
1: Yeah, we're wearing the uh you know Russian Soviet style Yushankas, but instead of the communist symbol there's a little book symbol for uh, libraries and the support of the library impending library revolution. Yeah. And also to that end we're wearing big library revolution watches which have countdowns until the inevitable day it comes, which is it's saying right now right around the corner.
0: Yeah, the countdown changes as reality changes, so you know. If you're worried that they're going to become less accurate over time, that's not true. These watches alter themselves. If material conditions change. Yeah, exactly.
1: Finally, maybe the most important part of our outfit is obviously clowns.
0: They wear big shoes. Why? Because they're funny. You know, it's actually a secret that both big and tiny shoes are funny, but you can't wear shoes that are much smaller than your feet because you'll hurt your feet. Exactly. Unless you
1: put little shoes on your toes. That'd yeah, little toe shoes would be pretty funny. five on each foot, or kind of disgusting, actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't find it disgusting.
1: it gives me some it gives me an uh, an ick. You could wear like tiny then,
0: little uh, stilts and put tiny baby shoes at the bottom of your stilts, and then, oh
1: yeah, that'd be so funny. that would be yeah <laughs> but we we went with the easy way. so we've just got Classic, enormously baby. long, uh, absurdly long even. and at the end of the shoes, they're floppy, so they kind of pile up and big piles it's like easily 20 30 feet long these shoes and they turn flaccid after the first foot or so so they all just kind of pile up in the corner of the room
0: yeah it's a major trip hazard and we have tripped over our shoes a lot today and we'll continue to so yeah if you're copying our fit and you find yourself tripping don't worry it's normal and you're still valid it's not a failure on your part but you might want to cover the floor with trampolines so the, or pillows. Whichever's closest. Yeah. Especially as we get older and bodies aren't so flexible anymore, you know.
1: Uh, so, the, yeah, that wraps up Wrong Boys Fit Check. If you're doing that look at home, uh, we managed to achieve it for, I think it was like $1,700 each, so not bad.
0: And we encourage cosplay and, yeah, take pictures, send them to us on Twitter if you're wearing this outfit. Yeah, we, we love to see it. Uh, we only describe how we look. We don't take pictures of ourselves, but...
1: Yeah, we're a little bit shy that way.
0: We figure if we had pictures to lean on, then we might not be as good with our audio descriptions. And this right. being a podcast, we're really trying to hone that skill. So we uh, we don't release pictures of our fits.
1: Yeah, no, it's kind of like a trial by fire kind of thing. It's like, if we can't describe it, then what business do we have podcasting?
0: Yeah, and we're also looking into potentially launching a whole new genre of fashion which is audio only fashion where people just describe what they're wearing yeah to cover their genitals and stuff
1: uh through description
0: uh yeah i don't always think about fashion that way but it is part of what fashion (laughs) does generally
1: (laughs) i've been studying fashion for a long time and from what i can tell the main point is to cover the genitals
0: we haven't quite got there yet but audio only fashion i believe it's going to be the next big thing
1: Yeah, we think within four or five, maybe six years, there's going to be a day where just entirely through the power of vocalization, through the power of sound effects and music, you'll be able to completely cover your genitals and look great.
0: But until that day, do not try that at home or at work or anywhere else, because if it's done wrong, it can be it can be a, a big whoopsie. So, yeah.
1: Well, without further ado, I think we should uh, get this tape. This is a tape of an interview that I conducted with Madeline about her excellent book. So if you don't object, I'm going to pop it in this machine. And
0: No, I don't object. I want to hear what uh, Madeline has to say. Let's, uh, let's press play.
1: Hello, everyone. We are now joined by Madeline Lane McKinley to discuss her new book, Comedy Against Work, Utopian Longings in Dystopian Times. Now, when I saw that title, it was kind of like the Vince McMahon meme where he keeps on getting more and more falling backwards. Like That's the way I felt with the, <laughs> this title. Like Each word, I was like, comedy, whoa, against work, whoa. Uh, so I'm really stoked <laughs> to have you here.
2: Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Maybe the most important question is, are you a utopian? Is this a utopian book?
2: <laughs> that's such a great question. Um, so I am a utopian, but when I say that, I want to clarify what kind of utopian I am. So, I see myself and my work as part of what some call, like Tom Moylan describes as the critical utopian tradition, um, which queer feminists, Marxists often kind of inhabit, which is anti programmatist and more about kind of orienting towards utopia as a methodology or a set of questions. So in other words, it's not just diverting from the utopian tradition of like, you know, the well-described island and perfect society or city or planet, <laughs> right? It's not about finding a space of perfection or a representation of perfection. It's about using utopia as a practice, a set of problems, and being more methodologically oriented. So that's how I'm a utopian. But I also wear a lot of hats. I identify as, you know, a Marxist feminist. I identify as a communist. I identify as an anarchist. (laughs) I see them as all kind of connected through utopia.
1: And how did this book get started? Like, where does the the thrust of this book come from?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, because I think I had an answer when I started, which I'm... Starting to wonder about because I think my relationship with comedy began when I was in elementary school in the 90s and started developing this particular relationship with stand up and comic material of various sorts. Late night comedy was especially a, a place of retreat for me. Like um, Conan O'Brien's early years were some of my favorites, and then like the Stand-up artists that he had on, or stand-up comics that he had on, really got me interested in comedy more generally. So there's that. There's the like childhood history, and then I went to grad school and studied utopian literature and uh, Marxist feminism, and went to undergrad and studied English literature. So I was kind of thinking a lot about those questions in the vein of literature and cultural studies and It was actually after getting my Ph.D. and kind of having a little bit of an identity crisis about, like, what was I doing in grad school and am I an academic or what's my relationship to the academy that these things kind of just linked up magically. And I was like, wow, interesting. These things that I had been kind of exploring in comedy much earlier on were actually what I was working out in my grad research and my dissertation project. So my dissertation was on utopian culture in, in the United States after the post-60s. That's kind of the historical framing of my dissertation. And so I was really looking for ways to like make use of that work in a way that felt like it was more politically satisfying to me and relevant, which meant taking it outside of the university in a pretty pointed way.
1: So how does um utopian comedy they're not straightforwardly I mean I feel like I sense a connection between them as a utopian and as a someone very interested in comedy, but mm-hmm. let, let's trace that out what 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 is the connection between comedy and utopia?
2: Well, so I think getting back to that point about like what is a critical utopian perspective look like? I think comedy is a way of putting us into contact with The possibility of other worlds, of anti-capitalist futures, of other forms of connection, and those moments of contact are fleeting and clarifying and beautiful. Comedy is not the only way to experience them, but it is it is one way. So I think that that's that's something I'm I'm really interested in the book. It's also you know comedy and utopia are genres, but they're also not genres, (laughs) right? Um, They're kind of leaky categories in interesting ways. I'm really interested in comedy as a kind of social practice, as something that we do with each other. As a parent, for instance, I often think about how to use jokes to be anti authoritarian in my parenting. <laughs> Getting somebody who needs to take a bath to take a bath right is a it's kind of a, a quandary if you're trying to do it in a way that's like really thinking about <laughs> The power relation between parent and child and you're trying to trying to trouble that. I find that comedy is a way that my kid and I often communicate with each other and ways to negotiate that power dynamic and kind of reimagine it and trouble it and point out when <laughs> when we're making mistakes and getting through those mistakes. so I think that's one of the ways that I think comedy can be a utopian social practice for instance so There's lots of ways to kind of web out on these two concepts, right? (laughs) But those are just a few. I don't know. What are are your thoughts about, like, what I was so interested in, um, you know, how you arrived at that connection between these concepts?
1: Yeah, the framework in the book talking about the way that a joke can be revealing about kind of our interpretation of the situation where if we make fun of the absurdity of the workplace... There's sort of an implicit critique of the boss when you make fun of the boss. So there's an implicit critique of the workplace power dynamics in joking in that context in certain ways. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting point. One of the ways that I've thought about comedy and left politics comes from Adam Krauss we had on the show, wants to talk about his book, The Revolution will be Hilarious. and he, talks about how a lot of comedy comes from like the intersection between two divergent ideas so the example he gives is like you know I shot an elephant in my pajamas how he got in my pajamas I'll never know <laughs> which you, you quote Grocho Marx uh, in your book too. It involves multiple ways of thinking about the same sentence, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. The collision between these different ways of thinking is where the surprise and the comedy comes from. And then the connection to politics is that people who are disadvantaged in social relationships of power, they need to cognitively imagine the views of the bosses of the leadership and so on in order to navigate the world. So... Employees need to know how the boss thinks, but the boss doesn't know, need to know how the employee thinks because they can just command them. Mm-hmm. And so that territory makes me think that there's sort of an inherent left-wing bias towards comedy, because if, if comedy is about reconciling different perspectives and right-wing politics is about being in power and not having to imagine other perspectives, that, mm-hmm. it, it provides a good explanation for why Daily Wire, no matter how much money they spend, can't find a funny right-winger.
2: <laughs> yeah. Funny to Who, though, right? I think that's the scariest part of that. Um, But I mean, I'm interested in that, the left's claim to comedy. I don't don't actually think that that's true, but I do think that we're coming out of a period for which that was definitely more dominantly the case, you know, the 2000s to, say, mid-2010s. And as a utopian, I think I tend most towards the theory of comedy that I think you were just elaborating is like incongruity theory, comedy's ability to put these incongruous things together. That's often what prompts the laughter, but that's also, you know, a kind of spark of utopian possibility or revolutionary laughter or these kinds of things. And I think that's often where left comedy kind of hangs out. But there's that whole other vein of comedy, which is about pure domination, <laughs> and I think that the right. the right has really locked into that in the last decade pretty intensely, so I think that's part of why I'm always a little bit hesitant to define comedy too clearly because it has that way of leaking out into these other ways. But I think domination and incongruity are definitely two of the kind of main ways in which I understand comedy and how it works at a technical level or formally.
1: Hey folks, this is Sean later in the editing process, having listened to myself interviewing. I was a little bit tired that day. I'm a little bit self-conscious. But one thing in particular, I just really want to clarify because I got it factually wrong and the truth is more interesting. So she asked me about the connection between utopia and comedy. And talking about Adam Krause's book, I failed to mention that the argument is that comedy needs to be a a merging or intersection between multiple perspectives. And that is also what the process of democracy requires for compromise, democratic engagement, public reason, etc. So that's his core argument about democracy. And I was kind of blurring in another argument, which is based on some conversations that I've had with him, taking some insight from bell hooks about how the oppressed need to understand the vision of the oppressor more than the oppressor needs to understand the vision of the oppressed. And in some ways, the oppressor needs to not see the way of the world from the view of the oppressed. So that's why the punching down, dominating comedy um, isn't funny to people of taste, because it's not intersecting these different perspectives, it's just in one perspective. And when they try to approximate the perspective of the non-dominant classes, they can't approximate it well, and as a result, they seem really out of touch. So anyways, that's just a little bit of clarity on that particular note about the connection between utopia and comedy, and Adam Krauss's idea about democracy is a really key sort of building block of my thinking about this. Uh, the idea of comedy as critique is another bit of thinking about this, but I really just wanted to clarify what was actually in Adam Krauss's book. I don't know if it makes for good podcasting to do that, but when you listen to yourself be wrong on the radio and I couldn't edit it out because she responded to what I said, you know, and it's like, eh. anyways anyways, feels good to just know that's clarified. Back to our show. Something I was thinking about when reading the book—you talk a lot about stand-up comedy. There's some fascinating, like, labor history around stand-up comedy in the book.
2: Oh, that Mitzi Shore's the strike at the comedy store, or <laughs> yeah, Polly Shore's
1: mom's strike at the comedy store. But and there's also a couple different directions the stand-up comedy stuff goes in the book, including talking about sort of the mythology of this authentic stand-up comedian who's free from work. And it was making me think about my experience, and I've—I did stand-up. A handful of times probably almost 10 years ago now but when i tried doing it i felt awkward about being the center point of the room Um, like (laughs) i've got a background in improv but there's something kind of authoritative and lecturing Mm -hmm. and like a lot of stand-up voices like when you think of a sort of golden age everyone's favorite stand-up comedians they all have this kind of know-it-all two steps back above it all unwashed hand solo comedy persona kind of thing and i felt a lot of pressure (laughs) in that direction Do you think there's something about stand-up comedy that encourages elitist comedy or or encourages this sort of like domination-based comedy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's such an American form, too. (laughs) So hyper-individuating. It's really hard to, even in duos, hard to kind of collectivize stand-up, right? So I see that as a really big tension. I I also think that's why these ideologies of work are just kind of flourishing around it, uh, around stand-up culture and how the stand-up has become such a kind of paradigmatic figure of how we relate to work and imagine ourselves in these kinds of entrepreneurial fantasies. But yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing. And that's probably one of the things I really like about, you know, I write a lot about Maria Bamford, and she's one of my favorite Well, I'll just say she is my favorite (laughs) stand-up comedian. And part of it is that she just is so awkward on stage, you know, that making visible of the awkwardness of that, that I think you were just kind of articulating. And if somebody's too comfortable with that, in that positionality, I think that's something to be very skeptical (laughs) of, right? Which is why I think it's become such a hot zone for fascist thinking, over the last decade. So I don't know, did you stop doing stand-up completely? Or?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I I barely started, but I (laughs) I tried it a few times.
2: It sounds like hell to me, honestly.
1: (laughs) I don't know, I found it haunting altogether. Like, no one was funny enough. And then I'm in this room of all these people who aren't making me laugh, which is awkward. And then everyone gets their turn as the five minute Mussolini and (laughs) they all make fun of each other and they're bullying each other. And the guy who's bullying the other guy, I'm like, no offense, man, but like, you're not very funny either. So like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel my general takeaway from it was like, this isn't for me. This makes me uncomfortable. The bullying thing bothered me and the heckling thing. And there was like, this guy heckled me, (laughs) not to brag, but he was calling my set too woke. (laughs) Because I made some sort of joke about, oh, yeah, no, it was the the shape of the clitoris wasn't mapped until after Space Jam came out, was my joke, Um, which (laughs) is scientifically true. Because it's like 96 and 95 or something. All right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it wasn't the right scene for it. I got heckled for it. And then when Mm. he heckled me, then I shit talked him. And then he was like, when you responded to my heckling, you know, like, that was good. That part was good. And I was like, just leave me alone, dude. Like (laughs) what's wrong with you?
2: Yeah. Stand up has become more and more focused on anger too. I mean I was just listening to an interview with Bill Burr. Sometimes I am masochistic like that, but sorry. (laughs) But I don't think anything he says is ever funny. It's just he just gets angry and mean and bullying. And then he once he gets people into a certain state, then he starts Just saying things for the sake of shock, you know, to kind of maintain that momentum. And I'm just so uninterested in that. But that does seem to be where stand-up comedy is more and more going towards this kind of anger and shock instead of funny, (laughs) you know. And, you know, the bullying was always there and it kind of comes and goes in stand-up for sure. But it's just really at a fever pitch right now. It's scary. I don't know. But I've also had some really profound, you know, moments in stand-up clubs, like watching somebody bomb is can also be like a beautiful, humbling experience and like commiseration comes out of that. And there's just something like really alive and fascinating about stand-up performance that I don't want to say, you know, as a forum, it's all horrible. I just see how in these particular ways it becomes so vulnerable to a kind of fascist takeover
1: (laughs) yeah I have a fondness for stand-up comedy that hasn't gone away and I think the best stand-up comedy is one of my favorite things like when really really good stand-up comedy really hits Mm -hmm. yeah this is the paradox is because I really do think that the merging of these divergent perspectives is where really good comedy comes from and like to use the example of Dave Chappelle when you look at his his early specials there's parts that don't hold up as well over time but then there's some parts where there's such a profound combination he's able to turn stuff on its head in a way that is just so energetic and connected and then you when you compare that to his most modern specials and it's not just because of the content and the controversies but that energy isn't there anymore and it's got this kind of blandness to it of like being rich too long or something
2: (laughs) (laughs) you said it (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he just seems really out of touch with what he used to be. And everything that I would say about it, Daniel Fuentes Morgan, or, you know, there's plenty of people who I think have done a really good job of looking at his whole trajectory and what's happened to him politically. But it's tragic. And yeah, there's some kind of boredom that it seems to be coming out of picking on people out of boredom, which is <laughs> just not going to be very generative material. But I don't want to single him out by any means either. I think people are kind of especially fascinated by him because of what he was and really thinking deeply about it involved kind of thinking through what has happened historically in the last 15 years or 20 years. He does seem to really signify that.
1: Something that occurs to me here, if one of the elements to the decrease in his comedic quality Mm -hmm. is that he's living a very lush life. He's out of touch because he's so rich. And it reminds me of this mythology of the stand-up comedian as someone beyond work. There's something you talk about in the book. There's this sort of aspirational, like, I want to be a stand-up comedian because I want to be like Jerry Seinfeld and Seinfeld and just stick around in diners with my friends, go tell jokes, make everyone laugh, and then go home rich. If the dream of stand up comedians is to have a work free life, too, but if the result of that mm-hmm. is that you become like Jerry Seinfeld, where it's horrible to watch you and your <laughs> comedy isn't funny for 30 or 40 years, is that such a beautiful utopian dream yeah. to, to reach that level after all?
2: Absolutely not. I mean, that's what I would call like a false utopian promise of stand up, right? Is this capitalist work ethic? paying off somehow <laughs> which it won't except for you know the lucky few but yeah i think that that's definitely a, a lurking false utopian promise which is why i look to like john Mulaney, for instance who i, I still think he is funny at a technical level <laughs> like he's a good craftsman but he's definitely going down the jerry seinfeld route now but the way in which he's kind of a figure of impossibility right this kind of golden boy the ideal worker that stand-up culture has kind of envisioned. Wasn't he the youngest SNL writer hired or something like that? I mean, he his ascent in SNL and then in stand-up is almost impossible and unprecedented. And I think he becomes kind of a fetishized figure of this work ethic. It's a dark force.
1: <laughs> I guess the idea is you put your nose down and you work really hard for little or no money for a really long time. And if you're good, you might win the lottery and get to be on TV. Is that roughly the, the what we tell comedi- comedians?
2: Yeah, basically. I mean, I think it's changed a bit with, you know, TikTok and things like that. But we were talking a little bit about the comedy store strike, and that was absolutely like how the comedy store, I mean, it wasn't unique to that, but that was that was how you got onto Carson, right? So you just worked that room until you got onto Carson and maybe you never would, but there's a, like a particular route. I think it's really intense now where there are infinite channels, it would seem, to that supposed success, but the odds seem to be <laughs> pretty much the same. It's just kind of miraculously, yeah, this Jerry Seinfeld lifestyle. And of course, you know, that's, I mean, I don't, I don't see him as a quote worker, but he a lot of it is his hustle, you know, that he he really works those jokes and fine-tunes them. And a lot of how he's kind of mythologized is about his dedication and <laughs> things like that. So even the promise of that workless life is still kind of coded in these terms, right?
1: Yeah, i never thought of it this way before reading your book, but the sort of like, toil here down on earth as a lowly new comedian and then to sort of like get that you know heavenly you're gonna have your name in lights and you're never gonna have to work you can just go to the diner kind of mythology it makes sense and it also does overlap with the sort of like TikTok micro gig internet culture thing where people are just spending all day making content and just hoping that one day they make the algorithm happy with their little videos and that eventually they're going to be able to get sponsorships and then eventually they're going to have a big following and obviously that does happen for some people but the vast vast majority of people who attempt to do this end up spending a lot of unpaid labor making free Mm -hmm. content for mega corporations and then they have to sort of retire. It's, a, it's an interesting dynamic.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so we're talking a lot about stand-up, and stand-up is an interesting epicenter of these ideologies of work and comedy. But, you know, I'm also really interested in the anti-work practice, say, of watching television, watching comedy, <laughs> just to turn that on its head, right? Like, how we use comedy in relation to our work lives. So even if Seinfeld is kind of at the narrative level, right, feeding into these problematic, false utopian work ethics of the stand up that the stand up comedian kind of figures, the actual practice of, say, watching Seinfeld and during my office hours or something like that, you know, that's also something I'm really interested in is a way in which we relate to comedy, right, as workers. Listening to comedy podcasts while doing work or you know caring for someone or something like this like why do we turn to comedy in those moments like what does comedy do for us yeah and that's where i see some of the more utopian questions popping up the dystopian questions are popping up around jerry seinfeld
0: (laughs) and now it's time for comedy labor history story time bim bam boom aaron let's talk about some
1: of that labor history within stand-up comedy
0: bim bam boom yeah let's do it so were you thinking the comedy store strike of 1979
1: yeah the comedy store strike of 1979 that is one of many things that's touched on in the book that we're talking about this episode so In 1979, the workers rose up at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles. They rose up against Polly Shore's mother, Mitzi Shore.
0: Yeah, the comedian workers.
1: Yeah, and Mitzi Shore was the boss of the Comedy Store. But like with any good revolution, we need to start with the preconditions, the turmoil that led to the revolutionary fervor to eventually rise up against the masters.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I read uh, in Comedy Against Work, I read that... (laughs) When Mitzi Shore first became the owner of the comedy store, it was a part of the divorce settlement with Sammy Shore, who's also a comedian. The philosophy that she brought to the club was kind of the opposite of Sammy Shore's philosophy, which was the most famous comedian here gets to go first. So it's a kind of, if you do that all the time, then comedians who aren't famous basically never get to go or beyond a certain level of fame like you got zero chance of ever being on the stage there but uh, you and you attract that talent you get an incentive for people to show up
1: early in the night and watch the most famous people and the right. most famous people are also know that they can be guaranteed to. anyways i'm not going to bat for him i'm just Thinking about the logic behind it.
0: Yeah. Well, Mitzi Shore said she's going to approach it more like a college where new talents can come and learn the craft of comedy, you know, so that not just the most famous people get to be on stage at the comedy store. So it was actually like, there was like some ways in which it was a really good thing.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, the giving people opportunities the idea of being about building life experience in relation to comedy and becoming better comedians and so on. There's something admirable about that, but like, the process of having comedians then like basically work for you for free, not just when you're doing comedy, but like doing other things, which is what she was doing as part of these pre-revolutionary conditions at the comedy store in the mid 1970s. Yeah, it's like uh,
0: the darker side. They called the door guy system <laughs> where she'd have them do like janitorial tasks or answering phones or running personal errands for her all night. So it's like being putting, paid. putting
1: in your time to be a comedian is just doing unpaid labor for someone who is at that time making $100,000 American per week in 1979 dollars, which comes out to,
0: you know, around about half a million a week in today America dollars. Right, that's a lot of money, half a million a week. That wasn't coming from the hard work of Mitzi Shore. It was coming from the comedians uh, and the other workers too a comedian named Cliff Nesterhoff said about it they paid the waiters they paid the waitresses they paid the valet and they paid the guy who cleaned the toilets but they don't pay the comedians it's a good point
1: like i'm i'm all for the pedagogy the you know mingling of new and old comedians and building people's potential and i think that's all very beautiful ideas that you, i would hope to in- integrate into comedy stores
0: of all kinds, but... You know, or comedy libraries. I don't know, store gives it such a <laughs> yeah. capitalist vibe, which is maybe appropriate for the labor conditions, but... But, but then she's like,
1: oh, yeah, you, also, if you pick up my dry cleaning, that's just, like, you put in your time That
0: eventually you'll be a comedian. That's sort of... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. She makes the point in the article, she kind of compares it to uh, this idea of like camouflaging the workplace, like all these like managerial things that come up. We're like, we're a family or we're the... like, Like camouflaging work in such a way that makes it seem like it's not work in order to extract labor from people. Like, no, you're just here at a college learning the ropes on how to be a comedian. And yeah, sometimes that involves getting my laundry, but yeah, then in 1978, comedians start secretly meeting and discussing their struggles. I'm quoting from the book. And in the early months of 1979, they uh, formed the CFC, Comedians for Compensation.
1: And what a beautiful thing it is when workers who are pit against each other, and this, the world of stand-up comedy is a very competitive world. Workers come together despite their being pitted against each other in a competitive sort of market of who becomes more famous, more rich than each other, to stand together and be like, hey, stop exploiting us, extremely rich person who is exploiting us. doesn't get much better than that. (laughs) (laughs) It's (laughs) So these comedians are like swapping stories with each other about some of the most outrageous things that have happened to them. They're getting a sense of common identity. And eventually, the comedians who are working at the comedy store, helping out Polly Shore's mom, they go on strike... And there's a picket line and it makes the national news. And certain comedians cross the picket line in specific Howie Mandel and Gary Shandling.
0: Yeah, those are the two that I know. There's a list of a bunch of other ones and maybe comedy people. Mike Binder, Argus Hamilton, Lois Bromfield, David Tyree. Just name and shame, even though I don't know who (laughs) these people are. (laughs) If you want the full
1: list, you can turn to the book. Uh, but you know who didn't cross the picket line is uh, Jay Leno and David Letterman. So good on them. I actually, for some reason, I thought Jay Leno did cross the picket line, and I told my friend that, and then
0: I just feel so bad. Yeah, I think you just have to tell your friend I was wrong. Like I please. just found
1: out Jay Leno didn't cross the picket line, but also this... This friend in particular doesn't have uh, a very astute labor <laughs> radar, so I probably didn't. I didn't. I don't think I impacted their impression of Jay Leno too much in the end.
0: Right, right. But I, I will still correct it. Gary it's... Shandling, though. And I I mean, what was that HBO show called? The Larry Sanders Show. I always thought that was pretty funny, but no more.
1: Now I watch it and I just don't laugh. I don't laugh remembering my labor history.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, David Letterman said that Jay Leno at the meetings was behaving like a hyperactive child, jumping up and down, being funny and distracting. Uh, And it was to the point that everybody sort of thought maybe we shouldn't tell Jay about the next meeting. I don't know how much of a joke that is. I assume Jay continued to get the invite. And he also got hit by a car, Jay Leno.
1: Yeah, it's interesting about this. I mean, like part of the whole thing is this idea that yeah, like the guy who hit Jay Leno with his car, he said, artists don't deserve to get paid, basically. He got angry about the strike,
0: and he's like, comedians are artists, it's not a job, it's about doing art. Yeah, it said the Mitzi Shore like, sent him to like talk on her behalf, and that's what he said. You're just artists. artist, you don't need to get paid. And then everyone got mad at him, and he tried to drive away, drove into the picket line, and hit Jay Leno. But Jay Leno was not. It says he was hardly injured, so I don't know what that means. Yeah, the it's funny
1: because when you talk about when we talk about how internet piracy is good, people are like, artists deserve to get paid. But then also like the sort of common sense of the culture is like there's actually a lot of contempt for artists who get paid. It's kind of like that thing Graeber talks about in bullshit jobs about the more rewarding your job is considered to be, right? the worse you should be paid. So, like, if you're a school teacher, like, it's so enriching to be with children. So, obviously, you should be paid like shit. And, like, the more soulless and the more, like, hard to manage, like, that's what you really get paid for upper, right. upper echelons. It's kind of like that with entertainers. And she points out in another chapter that, like, there's kind of a similarity between tipped work, like, being a waiter or waitress where you're performing a type of friendliness in exchange for tips you have to kind of pretend that you're not working and the same thing is true for comedians like it's not funny for a comedian to talk about the work of being a comedian i mean like if you think of like a youtube content creator a youtube content creator has to pretend that they're having fun all the time and it's like a vicarious thing so people watch it because like oh mr Beast's antics are entertaining but also i'm imagining what if i was mr beast i would be free so a lot of different content and comedy, and I think the same is true for podcasters. It's like you A lot of time you listen to podcasts, and it's not just about being like, oh, these people are funny, they're like my friends or whatever, but it's also about sort of the fantasy of also being there. But it's like, well, if I was on Chapo Trap House, I'd have so many good things to say. And part of that comes from the guys on Chapo never talking about how it's work. They have to kind of pretend it's not work. And this isn't what she's saying, and I don't mean to make it specific to the Chapo guys, they're just like... Biggest podcast in the micro universe of podcasts that we're, we're a part of. Right, it, it's it's kind of interesting, and it, and the way that it overlaps with the idea of like putting in your time and building knowledge and doing work for free, and the, the same thing is true of like being a content creator on the internet. It's like how many YouTube videos do you release before you even bother having a Patreon? Yeah, the, the comedy source strike is inspiring. You know, people standing up and being like, yes, I'm an artist, but it is also work. And like, I'm an artisan and this takes effort. And like, I don't exist to be your comedy assistant. Like, you're rich. Give me a share of the money that I'm helping generate. Uh, so in the end, Shore settled with them and agreed to pay $25 a show, which is 130 something in today's dollars. Per show, uh, except on amateur nights, and she said later that she won the strike, but she made it seem like they won the strike, but also complained that they had
0: been really unfair and mistreated her. She said, I was like Ruth, being stoned to death. I didn't deserve what they did to me. Which, by the way, is just for
1: clarity, Like
0: the comedy store
1: was making $100,000 a week in 1979, which is like a lot of money, and then she wasn't having her own dry cleaning dealt with.
0: Yeah, in general, I think... Artistic fields need to redistribute money from the vampirous, vampire-like middle (laughs) managers and, you know, labels and all all those companies and people and things who get in the way, like, take all the money.
1: Yeah, and to be fair to Mitzi, I I, want to not to be too one-sided here. She did contribute things. She had a vision on how to run the store that was interesting and perhaps an improvement on the earlier era. She had a business sense and was attempting to make money and that was her focus so there's like a skill there Uh, but at the same time part of running a business in the world part of the game rules of that is um a fight between the captain and the crew that recurs and the job of a good captain under this system is to compromise and work with the crew for the purposes of the the betterment of everyone yeah um but also according to the game rules, they try to maximize their, themselves. So that creates kind of like a tension. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying how it is. And she's probably playing the game pretty well. So I just wanted to give her credit for that. It's kind of like a girl boss moment.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I can't <laughs> deny that it was a girl boss moment. Oh, but
1: often, um, and this is pointed out in the book as well, often in cases where there's a real chance that like misogyny and the idea that she didn't deserve to be in her position could have played a part in the success of their uh, their movement it's just an, an ambiguous note and the book also hits an ambiguous note on that
0: right yeah no it makes sense but
1: labor history also has a lot of ambiguous notes if you look at it
0: yeah especially with regards to misogyny yeah
1: and like yeah racism and yeah that sort of stuff
0: and that was comedy labor history story time and now back to our show In other news, 1990s workplace comedy, Torture Prison, the light-hearted romantic slice-of-life comedy that takes place in a CIA black site in Eastern Europe, is back yet again with a new season this summer, now on the streaming service Careflix. A Careflix CEO had this to say,
1: Viewers love Danielle, Orlando, and the whole Torture Prison gang, and we're excited to bring more great stories about the workplace politics and people at Ninas van to our viewers, who Market Research tells us want to see lighthearted workplace hijinks
0: with zany uncles and coworkers falling in love. Torture Prison will be bringing that this season. Viewer data shows that people will often leave this show on in the background while they look at their phone so that they don't feel alone. Careflix has pledged to keep it intelligible while you're not paying attention, even if it means a worse show. In other news, beloved stand-up comedian
1: and sitcom star Binkles the Clown is back with a new special entitled Why Don't You Cancel This Middle Finger, You Filthy Cockroaches. Known for his family-friendly comedy about raising his three children as a single clown, this $8 billion deal with Careflix is part of a four-special deal with each focused on telling it like it is about a different political minority.
0: What, I meant it as a compliment. Can't we say anything anymore? In other news, are you a total genius? A new study says that listening to comedy podcasts at work is a symptom of extreme Einstein-level genius. Because you're having a great time, but you're also getting paid. We spoke to a worker on the widget line to explain their strategy, which experts call inspired. Uh, basically, I plug
1: in the comedy podcast and I make the widgets. Uh, so basically, I'm like, I'm like, having a great time, I'm also making widgets, and I'm laughing it up, and my boss is none the wiser.
0: Bosses are outraged, saying that they thought workers were only listening to music on those earbuds. Work is no place for a comedy podcast.
1: And that's why all of us bosses hate laughter. It distracts from the turning gears of industry. One thing that you observe that it's ambiguous, maybe dystopian, a lot of people spend their time at work all day and then they go home And they watch TV shows about people at work. (laughs) Yeah. What does that say about us?
2: I know. Yeah. I mean, it says so many things at once, right? That we can't escape from work, but we also really want to, right? It's like an expression of this deep longing to live a life outside of work. And it's also a reflection of our inability to do that. And it's both of those things at once, which I see as, you know, a profound tension (laughs) that comedy is really working through. Like, The Office is such an interesting example. Why was it in the pandemic when offices were shut down and whatnot? The Office was more popular than it had ever been before. And it was like 55 billion streaming minutes in 2020. (laughs) <laughs> right why are people turning to that show in particular to cope with and make sense of this moment of you know transforming working conditions it's also really terrifying that there's this whole new generation that is discovering the office and watching the office and their elementary school to middle schoolers <laughs> like who have never hopefully never worked in a paper office before right but work is so totalizing that I don't think that an elementary school student is really thinking of this as like a workplace comedy. It's more like a playhouse or something like that, that the office is packaging work as. So there's a lot of layers there. And that's exactly why I think taking a kind of critical utopian perspective is really important because you have to be kind of dialectically negotiating with <laughs> with these contradictions. And so I do see that there's something really beautiful, though, about why people turn to, to shows like that, which is that it's giving us something that we wish could be imaginable, right? There's like a profound dream at the center of that, right, that is tainted by work, but really at the core of that is our desire to not be working, for work to not be work, right? and to be living in a world where we could somehow transcend that. That's something to kind of think through more. But I mean, I'm interested in like watching as laziness, what exactly that means.
1: (laughs) On the paradox of the workplace as a family, there's almost like this propagandistic Mm -hmm. kind of thing to have all these TV shows that are about workplaces on one hand so it's almost like a pacification a a capitalist public relations kind of you're going to be exploited but you'll get a few laughs and friends along the way it's like a big family and
2: you'll meet your life partner and (laughs) you know all these things right like the jim and pam line is like you'll fall in love in the office right i mean that's really disturbing <laughs> which I, I mean I know that's, that's yeah, how yeah. it is but that's really how, how it's coded
1: right yeah no it, it is fascinating to think about just like the subtle kind of message because most people don't you know meet the people that they have kids with or whatever in their office environment there's life is a varied place where you meet people in a lot of circumstances but in the tv show called the office obviously it would happen there but then on the other hand of it too there's it's propagandistic in a way but then there's there's also ways that comedy can represent a break or a critique of even in the office there is a little bit of comedy comes from the absurdity of recognizing that no one wants to be in an office and that a world built around offices is a dystopia
2: right yeah that's absolutely a part of it right it's all of these things at once and i think in that show in particular by the end of it this kind of ideology of like family completely captures all of those other more critical strands that I think are coming up earlier on about, yeah, it is about a paper company and a paperless economy. It's like completely absurd, right? (laughs) But that gets kind of lost.
1: What's the difference between the, the US office and the UK office here? I remember something about Michael being kind of like a loony uncle character, mm-hmm. but also a loony uncle character who controls your pay, maybe sexually harassed you and who makes inappropriate jokes. All You know, like there's a, yeah, something weird going on there. Uh,
2: yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I write about that in one of the chapters about, I call it jokester managerialism, barring from Lauren Berlant's kind of thinking on the jokester figure. But between David the boss figure in in the UK, and then uh, Michael, the Steve Carell played boss in the US, there's definitely really different kind of ideologies of work that are framing these figures. And I know that when they were adapting it for the US, they knew the American boss would have to be nicer, and that he would have to be redeemed in some way. And I don't really know Where I'm getting this from is Ricky Gervais, and I take it to also be a kind of insult about America, (laughs) American comedy that's packaged in that. But I think the David Brent figure that he plays in the UK office is much more clearly a figure of domination, and the ways in which he uses jokes are to cultivate power and feel himself empowered, kind of like Hobbesian <laughs> comedian or something like that, right? He calls himself a chilled out entertainer in the office, right? And that they're lucky to have him as their boss, as this chilled out entertainer. And Michael, I think, maybe in the first couple of seasons, there was much more of a kind of imminent critique to that character, right? But I think his vulnerability takes over and by the end of that show everyone feels sorry for him because he's so clueless about himself and so yeah he becomes a really problematically redemptive figure and i think i write about the actual last scene that he's in in the office he you know it's this really sentimental moment and he can't help but break into this really like racist impression of one of his racist characters that he, that he Pulls out a lot more in the early seasons, right, but at that point, it's like, Oh, Michael, you know what a weird tick he has, or you know there's some like he's been rendered this kind of pathetic funkel you know fun uncle kind of figure, so that show is really like in terms of Michael really about this trajectory towards you know forgiving the boss for all of his harassment is unintentional, and he doesn't really mean it, so That's really what I see as like the kernel and that's why I think it's like a much more reactionary and fucked up show (laughs) the American one. Um (laughs) I would say like the UK office, Ricky Gervais has really basically become David Brent. So (laughs) as much as I wanna point to like how great I think that show is at kind of critiquing the workplace and the power dynamics that take place in them, his version of comedy in the stand up world is unreflexive version of that absolutely
1: <laughs> yeah i actually in the same sort of category as dave chappelle this bland reactionary domination humor is increasingly what i associate him with but even before that i saw this there's like this chat between him louis ck i think chris rock was there and jerry seinfeld
2: oh god that sounds horrible <laughs>
1: And Louis C.K., mm. this is before Louis okay. C.K.'s is revealed. Yeah. <laughs> His actions it's are revealed. revealed. <laughs> Actually, and Louis C.K. drops a hard R N bomb in that interview, if I recall oh, correctly. God. But it's a fascinating discussion because like anthropologically, because mm-hmm. they're talking about what comedy <laughs> means to them. And it's so clear the whole time that three of them are comedians who were like really put in the time and like did the circuits and like did that sort of like hard mm-hmm. nose-down authenticity hardworking comedian narrative mm-hmm. and it's clear that ricky gervais never did that mm. and that they kind of like look down on him for it there's a few like awkward moments of them being like ricky gervais isn't a real comedian
2: <laughs> that's what gary Shanling thought too right right yeah yeah <laughs>
1: Which is probably one of the harshest things that comedians can say to each other other than like, you're not funny, or especially, you're not funny anymore. Now that that one really stings. It occurs to me that like, you're not funny accusation. When I'm talking about Dave Chappelle, Mm. and I want to be critical of him, one of the natural places to go is like, he's not funny anymore. In stand-up comedy culture, it's like, whether or not someone's funny is almost like, the terms of the debate and then anything else is secondary like if mm. if it's funny but it's immoral if it's if it's funny but it has horrible effects right all that matters is whether it's funny so instead we have debates about whether or not it's funny and then sort of gets into like benign violation theory of comedy like the idea that <laughs> it's funny to fall down the stairs but it's not funny if they break their neck when they're falling down the stairs yeah whereas people are saying Dave Chappelle people are breaking their necks on this routine mm-hmm. I don't know that was kind of a rambly uh, <laughs> chunk of ideas no
2: I know it, it brings up a lot for me about you know I also write a lot about like the figure of the killjoy and you know that's what feminists are told right is that they're not that they're not funny anymore that that they can't be funny. It's not even you aren't funny, it's that you can't be funny <laughs> and be a feminist, right? Yeah. right? Feminism <laughs> and
1: stand-up comedians, they're natural enemies. Exactly.
2: According to Louis C.K., In least.
1: contradiction. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, that's the story of the Killjoy. And I'm really interested in, like, well, actually, a lot of the people in my real life who are really funny are Killjoys. <laughs> like, you know, watching a movie with my best friend, Jasmine, And, you know, listening to her, you know, ongoing critical commentary is really funny, you know, (laughs) and I think there's something interesting in what you were bringing up about, you know, how this, you know, rating somebody's funniness is kind of used to weaponize comedy against feminism, against queer critiques, against anti-racist critiques, or all of these things, right? the way in which a Bill Burr type kind of corners one into vulnerability and sensitivity <laughs> in pointing out, you know, the inherent hatred, like, you know, that, that he's flaunting comedy as basically hate speech, right? But to point that out makes you a killjoy. It makes you unfunny. So there's that threat. You can't ever really say that in comedy culture, right? So I'm interested in that. I'm wondering what's going to happen in the next few years because I see that really bubbling over in some ways. And one example that I'm currently like really obsessed with is just what Tim Heidecker has been doing as somebody who could very easily be benefiting off of these kinds of white masculine fan bases. He could easily be like, you know, the favorite comic of (laughs) incels but he's been really actively trolling the quote-unquote anti-woke stand-up comedian archetype and doing it in just really interesting ways so yeah i'm looking towards those critical tensions coming up more and more but that's pretty fascinating
1: yeah it's totally true like tim heidecker could come out and do some half-baked like attack helicopter jokes and he might financially benefit from it yeah but i do think the stuff he's doing right now i forgot that this was stand-up because it is so transgressive but the no more bullshit guy the (laughs) tim heidecker like almost andrew dice clay ricky gervais kind of character yeah
2: yeah it's his andy Kaufman moment When I watched that special (laughs) on
1: YouTube when it first came out, I think that is the hardest I've laughed at stand-up in years, his ironic, shitty, narcissistic, (laughs) and he's totally sort of satirizing that that exact dynamic in comedy of the unwashed Han Solo, two steps above it all kind of thing. It really is brilliant stuff. (laughs) And I'm glad we don't live in the universe where Tim Heidecker is doing the attack helicopter tour. That would be extremely tragic for me.
2: That he's gone Jim Brewer or something like and become that that type or yeah I think and that's exactly what his comedy is doing now too is pointing out just to like circle back again to you know the ultimate insult among comedians to say you're not funny but the parody Joe Rogan hour that he did that's like a you know on loop for twelve hours I don't
1: know if yeah, you watched that. I did watch that <laughs> I've watched a lot of that.
2: Oh my God! Yeah, I, I watched almost twelve hours of it because I was <laughs> deeply fascinated. I unfortunately couldn't write about it in the book and keep trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do with this? Because I'm, I'm really in it. But yeah, pointing out to just how unfunny Joe Rogan is too. Right? Like, I think that that's part of what's so satisfying is the way in which he's revealing the unfunniness of this material. The way in which you know that that's really what will sting for a Joe Rogan (laughs) is to feel seen as the unfunny asshole that he is. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really interested in what Tim Heidecker is going to keep doing with this. I really hope he keeps doing it. And I hope more people think through how to weaponize satire and especially white men in comedy. Like if you're still going to be a white man in comedy, like do something like that, you know, (laughs) that's amazing.
1: It's interesting. It makes me think of, like, there's a criticism to it. There's a similar dynamic in the way that, say, like, a attack helicopter comedian approaches lecturing everyone about how kids these days on college campuses don't like comedy anymore because they're too busy making up new pronouns, <laughs> versus the stand-up comedian form is still taking almost this sort of lecturing approach with the Killjoy comedy of mm-hmm. lecturing comedians on the indifference they have to the outside world, having their head up their own ass, being out of touch by being too rich for too long and being too praised for too little work and yada, yada. There is a kernel Mm -hmm. of parallel of critique and how in one direction it's being used to reinforce the structures of society in another direction. It's being used to criticize structures in society.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there is a kind of lecturing impulse but it's also partly in how he's using, and I'm sticking to Tim Heidecker here, but, you know, how, how he's using satire is, you know, it's precisely what's not being said that's being said the yeah. loudest, right? So I think that that's interesting.
1: And Tim Heidecker probably a bad example of that because of that right. satirism being so present.
2: There's a whole slew of really great... You know, like River Butcher, I really liked his last, I don't think it was a full hour, but Comedy Central special that came out last year. And there's great comedians doing more like sincere killjoy comedy that is actually critically unpacking some of that stuff and not just trolling back <laughs> that I find, I find interesting. And I also feel really protective of because... It's just a scary time to be vulnerable in stand-up with all of these quote-unquote brave comedians. (laughs) And in some ways, that's exactly what those quote free speech warrior brave comedians want is for people to reveal this vulnerability and act like the snowflakes that we know they are or that kind of thing. So it, you know, Admiral Adbar, you know. It's a trap. Like, (laughs) I just get really, I really get worried sometimes about some of these really beautiful, queer, feminist, killjoy (laughs) standups, because they're the real brave ones, right? And it's hard to watch that happening when you know there's so much potential harm that they're facing and they're taking on themselves in that world in which, yeah, hate speech has become so abundant and prolific.
1: Yeah. And they're not just brave in the potential harm they'd face backwards, but they're also undertaking a harder comedic project. They're mm-hmm. trying to tackle the sort of like mountain climbing of comedy, which is to make something really funny that it also remains really conscious. And mm. that is like uh, it's like a, that's a whole another layer of skill, like when you find someone who can walk that line. In terms yeah. of technical proficiency, and this is another thing stand-up comics like to do that I'm kind of aping, is like being like this sort of analyst of comedy, of uh, mm-hmm. my personal inclinations out of it. All politics aside, you have to acknowledge that the technical proficiency of someone who's able to juggle social justice and getting an audience to break down laughing is doing something yeah. sort of masterful that, that Ricky Gervais doesn't have to do when he does attack yeah. helicopter number 512.
2: Yeah, that's, it's just easy, right? I agree. And it's beautiful to watch when it works, right? But it works one night and it doesn't the next, right? That's the other thing. (laughs) So that fleeting, like what we were talking about before, that like utopian moment of brief clarification and epiphany, you know, is really something to, yeah, to be protective of and to be looking for and trying trying to find ways to facilitate and keep that Going, but I could see why, you know, there's. I'm not even going to go into like the whole Nanette thing of quote unquote quitting comedy, but there have been a lot of people, you know, not wanting to do comedy. (laughs) Like, that's the whole story of this is who in the history of this forum has been prevented from even stepping into it, right? And it's painful to watch people who've gone through that get into it, quote, pay their dues and do that hard, hard work that we're talking about, and then. Feel a need to leave because of these things so i don't know
0: <laughs> welcome back everybody to night shift with benny bowman the number one late night tv show and our special guest tonight is a man who needs no introduction he's a legend someone we've welcomed into our home for decades. He is the star of the classic 90s sitcom Observation. His observational comedy really just gets to the heart of things. Everyone can relate to it. He makes the little moments of life hilarious. Please welcome back to the stage Witty Observation.
1: So, I'm getting my home theater replaced, uh, which means I have to deal with some real geniuses. Don't, 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 hitting themselves in the head with the hammer. It's like, uh, didn't you go to college to sit at a desk instead of working with your hands? <laughs> Still on TVs, huh? Never got onto computers. So, the thing I hate about this, I'm trying to get this quick TV repair on my home theater system, it's a huge TV. I think it's gonna take 10, 15 minutes, I call the guy in. And this genius is touching all my classic movie posters, pulling them down off the walls, you know, getting his fingerprints on the glass, and it's like, do you even know the history? You know, it's hard to find uh, good talent for bad jobs, low jobs. You know, people who don't prioritize their time well end up in those jobs and then you don't get the best. So he's there to install my satellite dish and I'm having to orbit around him like I'm a satellite. That pisses me off. I mean, my masseuse, my personal masseuse, she's on the way to my penthouse. She gives me a phone call. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot how big the staircase up to your penthouse is. I'm in a clunk, clunk, clunk. I can hear a table behind her. She's dragging up the stairs. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be 10 ma- minutes late, 20 minutes late. So I'm like, look, life happens, but I'm going to start paying it when you're here to give me my massage. I'm not going to pay when you get at the gate. You need to remember this. You know, I'm not paying you to figure out how long the staircase is. And I mean, everyone wants a piece these days. Starting with the government, city hall, bureaucrats, but even down to the lowliest, worst jobs. Like, I'm sorry, I don't tip on food deliveries. These food delivery people, they grab my food, bring it in the dirty car over to my house, they don't insulate the bag right so it gets cold, take some of my french fries, they leave it at the front gate instead of bringing it all the way up the stairs to my penthouse, and I'm supposed to bring out my platinum card for that? No thanks. I mean, I'm getting getting blood dry here. Plus, they're adding a tax now for bags? It pisses me off. You know, what's the deal with servants running their mouths in general? Don't they know how replaceable they are? It's like, boom, it's like quick phone call. It's like, you are dismissed. Do these servants not realize that their job is to shape my reality into one in which I'm a hero? (laughs) It's, It's a simple job. That pisses me off. Thank you everyone. (laughs)
0: oh welcome back uh that was amazing that's your top of your game in terms of comedy i must say well thank you we, you're a legend yourself the thank you yeah. like me
1: have you noticed is this the thing the the audiences these days there there's a lot of polite applause they're not laughing at oh, yeah. those deep belly laughs you used to like is this like
0: like it's a, a generational a woke thing, I think. Student thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, is it is it hard to actually laugh and mean it these days? Oh, it's too hard. It's so much work to laugh. I'm just gonna politely applaud instead. No, that's
1: it. Laughing is work. That's it. They're lazy. Their, their audiences today, they're lazy. They, they oh, I'm sorry, you have to, in order to get to a comedy show, yeah, you have to get out of bed. You have to stop watching flicks all day. You have to stop stuffing your, your mouth full of disgusting food, putting crumbs everywhere. Mm, and yeah. yeah, you're gonna have to walk around the block once in a while.
0: I yet, write all my best bits walking around the block, but you know, these lazy, they, they don't. See, so you come to the shows and you laugh. Audiences used to laugh, right?
1: Am I right? That's what I'm saying, things have changed. You know the audiences—they used to be good, but now they've become bad over time. They're worse than they used to be, and it's tracks. Yeah, it's.
0: You know, I sometimes joke we're going to have to pull down these applause lights and put up laughter lights. Yeah,
1: sincere, deep, yeah, laughter, like real laugh, laughter, yeah. like there used to be. Genuine, yeah, from before audiences got worse and they started laughing less and politely applauding more. We need
0: that sign, honestly. With, like, look at all of you—you're, you're. you're what are are your jobs you know someone told me once that they thought they were just applauding because I'm a household name and they've known me for my previous work and you know done this late night show for a decade so people feel comfortable around me but they're not like finding what I'm saying funny because they're not funny jokes but I was like that doesn't make any sense yeah who'd that come from it's the audience that's someone at the
1: top of their game say that
0: no 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 <laughs> someone who made Absolutely. the right life choices someone who thought they could be a comedy writer on our show but didn't make the cut i'll put it that way
1: look i got this horrible idea i'm sorry everyone i am so sorry i have to say this cool. what's he gonna
0: say this, what is it look i
1: i hate to say this and i'm sorry to say this it's, oh are ba-
0: are you gonna get canceled for this it's this... bad
1: enough just to think it but now i'm thinking i'm gonna say it and I think what it might take for audiences to remind them what's funny and not funny anymore might be a strong leader, like a mm. political figure to provide an inspiration, to help them not be so lazy. Right, right. Someone who could enforce that comedy is legal. Make comedy legal again.
0: Right. By yeah.
1: punishing people who try to stop comedy.
0: By not laughing. At funny by not jokes. laughing
1: at funny jokes, yeah. by Criticizing statements yeah. made by public figures on yeah. social media.
0: Tell me about it.
1: We gotta make it feel like in the 1990s again
0: for everyone. I'll just pop out that tape. Wow, this that- guy's
1: off the charts with 18 to 35 suburban males.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. He is presidential material. The political turn here. There's something. There's a spark there. There's a. There's a spark to him. It's a household name. People know who he is. And you know what? Honestly, they're applauding because those ideas are great. Yeah, it's resonating. Yeah, And it's
1: resonating with the people that we need to carry the White House. Let's call his agent.
0: Hello? Uh, Connect me to Witty Observations agent, please. We need to make a deal. So, Witty,
1: do we have a deal? If for no other reason than my patriotism for this great country,
0: I am in. Hey, let's pop the cork. I am so glad that we could work this out. This You are gonna be the greatest president in history.
1: I'm a big believer that lazy people need presidents. I'm humbled, I really am humbled. To be a legend in one field and then to become a legend again is every legend's dream.
0: witty observation for president bringing the 90s back times have changed and as an aging you know
1: millennial gen x sort of territory i I miss the simpler times you know times when you just laugh at whatever we wanted instead of just applaud i don't think there's anyone in washington who understands that Hello, thanks for being at my town hall, Iowa. We've got a question, I think. You, who's got the microphone? Tim. I'm told it's Tim. Tim, do you got the mic?
0: Yes, yes yeah. <laughs> Mr. Observation, uh, witty, sir. Uh, big fan since the 90s. Always loved your stuff. And, um, you know, I was trying to relax after a hard day at work last week, watching some of my favorite old comedy specials, laughing, laughing at the jokes, and my daughter came home. And, you know, she goes to one of these public schools. They've been teaching her God knows what kind of Marxism. And she says, Daddy, Daddy, that's not funny. That's not funny at all. That's problematic. And I said, something needs to change. Can you help?
1: Thank you for asking this question. That's an important concern. And this is happening from coast to coast. This is something that we're seeing more and more of, frankly, and sadly. But most importantly, frankly. Comedy used to be something that everyone could just laugh at. You look left, you look right, everyone's laughing. No one's frowning, no one's shaking their head no. And the the, the comedy would be judged by does it make you laugh or not? There's no room for conversation. Oh, that wasn't funny, even though it got a laugh. Now that new territory has been opened, and so I propose that we close it. The only way that people are allowed to, under my regime, the only way that it, people are allowed to respond to comedy is either by laughing or not laughing. They're not allowed to applaud, they're not allowed to provide commentary, not allowed to review, the only test is laughter. That is what comedy is about, so let's make it pure and let's enforce that by the barrel of a gun. And secondly, we need to fight for the right for comedy to be legal, and that means going to war with the people who are... Attacking comedy, so namely, we need to politically suppress critics of comedians.
0: And make comedy legal again, Make comedy
1: legal again, yes, that's right. If you elect me, I will be your champion, and everyone will be laughing again, just like the old days. It'll be easy to laugh and laugh and laugh, and no one will ever be mad at you. And I'll just pop that tape out. So, focus group, what would you guys think? I'd vote for him. You seem strong to me. The 90s were simpler days, and I wouldn't mind going back. Honestly, I'm someone who loves to laugh, and so I felt like I had a real kindred spirit with him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah kindred spirit. No, I yeah. feel that. I would do voter fraud for this guy. It's so
0: much harder to laugh these days.
1: Uh, my only criticism
0: is I can't vote for him today. You know, I would support the fascist coup takeover to install him without voting at all. Yeah, yeah. That's a good oh, idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just until comedy's legal again. Yeah,
1: sometimes seeing that guy talk just makes me want to politely applaud, like, out of respect. He's, like, something about him, I just... Well,
0: he was great in the 90s, you know? It's just applaud because of that. The right, memories. no, then maybe that's it. Yeah.
1: I support him. I'll just pop out this tape. Well, yeah, grandson. So he, uh, he went on to become uh, the leader, the president, fascist president. And uh, so one of the things that happened in my life. Wow. Sort of a crazy
0: story. And then what happened after that, Grandpa? Yeah, well, I... It's a story for another time. You're going to bed and- I don't want to go to bed yet. I want to hear the whole story. Oh, well, you're the- This is such a sad ending. A fascist leader arises? That's not how you end a story. Knock, knock, grandson. Uh, who's there, Grandpa? Bedtime. Aww. Do you open the door? No.
1: That's very rude. You should open the door and let bedtime in.
0: Can't the rest of the story come and beat up bedtime? and kick him to the curb? No, that's
1: also very rude.
0: Bedtime's our friend. Sleep is good. Sleep time is a tyrant. No bedtimes, no masters. The more you sleep, the better you feel. Okay, I'm turning off the light, and um, you just lie in bed if you sleep. If you don't sleep, I don't care, but... I'm not sleepy at all. I'll never fall asleep. Ah, what a kid. I wish I could tell him the whole story
1: right now, but it's getting late. Ah, Time to go put on one of my favorite shows on Careflix and just kind of look at my phone and stuff like that while playing my favorite show on repeat in the background, racking up streaming minutes.
0: Will this grandpa finish telling his grandson this story? Will witty observations fascist reign of terror end up bringing the 90s back for everyone? Or will he be defeated by some kind of counter-political force? The answer to all these questions and more at the end of the episode. A
1: thing I really wanted to make sure to hit here is at the end of the book, the last chapter, you have three recommendations. There's three beautiful recommendations that connect thematically (laughs) to things in the book, but also I think... This is maybe the most utopian part of the book, the most unabashedly utopian part of the book. Can we go through these sort of one at a time and talk about what they yeah. are and what their justifications are? The first one is play. What does play have to do with having a good life, <laughs> addressing the issues with work culture?
2: Well, one of the things I'm looking at in that section is how play has become you know, its own work ethic right, and become distorted by work in the same ways that love and care and artistry, and the book kind of works through these different sites of recuperation, but I'm looking at the decline of play specifically in children's lives in the United States in that section, how less and less unstructured, free, self-directed time is being experienced by children generationally, and especially because of the pandemic. So that's one of the things that I'm interested in that section is distinguishing that unstructured, free, self-directed time and activity from the era of what's called labor, right? The rendering of labor into play, the rendering of play into labor, right? To find ways to extract profit from activities that appear at least on the surface to be playful or fun or games, so I think that that's, that requires a kind of critical methodology, which is what the last chapter is looking at is toward a utopian method of comedy. So taking back play and really thinking about the ways in which play has been robbed from us and to also identify the ways that play appears as that which it isn't and the ways in which you know work really robs us of that actual experience that we're getting when we play, which is just to be doing something for the sake of doing it, right? (laughs) Right? That there is something inherently self-motivating about it that isn't about what you're going to get next from it, or you're doing this so that you can appear as a better worker or to instrumentalize work in some way. So, That's really what I'm interested in with play. And I look at the ways that this child psychologist, Peter Gray, has been kind of writing about the decline of play from children's lives as an epidemic, something unnoticed crisis that's been ongoing for decades.
1: I love the politics of play stuff. I was really excited to run into that. And the argument is structured with a lot of evidence. And I'm already convinced, but I found it very persuasive. (laughs) Should adults be trying to play more? Is that a utopian method, do you think?
2: Yeah, totally. I think that's what we're looking for in comedy, right, is somebody, and especially in comedians, somebody to help us play, (laughs) help us to do this thing that's become so estranged from us under capitalism. But I do think it really involves a lot of, you know, a lot of important thinking about power and how what's really happening when we're playing is we're fucking with power, Right. (laughs) And so I think we need to be playing. We also need to be figuring out how to play with kids and how to support kids in playing. And this is one way in which we can learn as adults from kids. They can teach us how to do this. They know how to instinctively. I'm not trying to naturalize children in this way or, or fetishize them. But, you know, before they're completely deprived of this aspect of their childhood by like the school system or these pressures, you know, children can really teach us a lot. You know, being a parent, that was something I, before my kid developed like verbal language was especially like, <laughs> how do we communicate, right? It was through making silly noises and through these kind of preverbal sounds and things like that, right? So th- having more experiences like that, you know, I think enhances our Abilities to even, yeah, momentarily be at play. That's really hard though, because the family structure is one in which, in the United States especially, it feels like, okay, well, how do I hang out with a kid without having a kid myself? (laughs) Right? Right. And I think that's one thing that we can also do as kind of utopian thinkers is interact with children as comrades, as friends in play and to do that in ways that also trouble the family form and yeah I think that that's a really beautiful thing but when I say that also I'm not talking about what I call funkling (laughs) which is like I think that that's also a really curious impulse but the example I used earlier of like trying to negotiate with my kid about taking the bath that I know that they need to take (laughs) because they're they're dirty or something you know I'm not, I don't have a strict regimen of you need to take a shower every day or like twice a day or anything like that, but we have negotiated terms and things like that. But how do I support my kid to take that bath in a way that's anti authoritarian, but that's also like not this total relinquishing of my responsibility, which I like to refer to as funkling, that ultimately just puts that burden onto some other caretaker? So I think these are all things that we can figure out more effectively if we are able to play. And I say that knowing full well, there there are many adults who have just never played. They haven't had that kind of experience. And so it's becoming more and more rare, but I think it's a source of raw material, right? That we could use in kind of starting to think about a utopian method of comedy, right? Is trying to use comedy towards those
1: means. There's so much good shit in there. <laughs> One thing that you said early on that really, I think it's really profound, and it kind of gave me an aha moment when you were just talking. The idea that stand-up comedians are helping people to understand how to play. It made me mm-hmm. think of the way that these dominating, cruel forms of comedy. Now, it, it's bad to offend someone, like to really harm them, where like, that's bad. But mm-hmm. that framework really gives us context of, Something that's more I think profoundly bad than that, and <laughs> as I'm circling around it, I'm getting a little bit emotionally moved by the concept. I don't know, just the idea that the stand up comedian taking the wrong tack could be shitting on the parts of people that wants to be happy and playful, and like it's not mm. just like an attack on the person as a whole, although that's part of it. It's also like shutting down this avenue of human expression by saying like this space that we all want to express ourselves in, you're not welcome in. Yeah, It makes me think about like the ways that we can implicitly tell comedy that's inclusive and open and make sure that everyone's welcome to join in on the joking, that it's a shared space of play rather than an exclusive. Anyone who appreciates mirth and joy should be bothered by the idea of someone being told that they're not welcome to join. There's something really twisted about that.
2: Yeah, I I really agree with you. And I think when we're talking about comedy, we're not just talking about stand-up, but that is why that's happening so much in stand-up and so much more easily. And I think of like improv. I know you, you were saying that that's where you've inhabited comedy than stand-up. And yeah, the play is so much more accessible formally through improv, right? <laughs> stand-up is much more vulnerable to this kind of fascist takeover. And it is really the way you were saying that to me, was like, it is heartbreaking, isn't it? Right? Because that's why we go to comedy is for that kind of experience. And um, not only is this hate fueled comedy, not that, but it's squashing that and oppressing that. And that's probably... The ultimate greater harm of this is the way that, yeah, the impulse towards comedy itself, right, is being tarnished, yeah, obliterated by by that hatred. It's sad. <laughs> like I'm getting emotional too. But yeah, to protect comedy as a space of play, it uh, seems really important. And to be thinking about comedy as a way to, in our everyday lives, not just as consumers turning to stand up, but as just You know, a way to work through interpersonal conflict, a way to communicate with each other and to express care. I think that comedy is an amazing resource that we have. And so we need to protect it. We need to be thinking about these different tendencies and practices within comedy and be able to make these differentiations. And it's not just a matter of punching down or punching up, right? But it, Seems to be, you know, when I was growing up and listening to comedy and listening to stand ups talk about their comedy, that's something that used to be talked about, it seems like, a lot more than now. And some of the same comedians who were once making that distinction really, really well are just all in on punching down, <laughs> right? So,
1: yeah, I think the playfulness of improv is, I think, why people are so. Harsh on it, and also because stand-up comedians ended up working during a critical period of American television. Stand-up comedians ended up working in writers' rooms, which then popularized an idea of improv. Sorry, I just want—I <laughs> just wanted to defend improv one last time before.
2: <laughs> mm. No, I love improv, and improv definitely gets shat on a lot. So, and I like improv not because I necessarily even think it's funny. I just—it's again—it's like a human experience that comedy makes possible, and. When you're watching it live, there's just an energy in the room that it's important to observe when you have those experiences and to really think about what was it that I was experiencing there? What was that spark? Where'd that come from? And I think a lot of it is just spontaneity and collectivity and (laughs) communication—like really beautiful, fluid forms that improv makes very vulnerable, and so it's easy to attack. (laughs) I'm
1: with you. The second utopian prescription. Which I was actually—I should say—when I was reading, and I read the fun section, I read the play <laughs> section. I was like, "Fuck yeah!" Like this is this is great. And then when when you got to the second one, I was actually I was like surprised, but it was one of those like surprised, <laughs> and then you're, and then it's like, ah, you know, like I don't know. Oh uh, yeah.
2: It's sleep. What's
1: revolutionary? <laughs> What's utopian about sleep? It's isn't that just something we have to get out of the way in as few hours as possible every day before we go back to rewatching The Office. Work.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, no, exactly. Right. It's something that's being eviscerated from our lives, precisely because of our working conditions. And so I'm drawing a lot from a text that I always recommend. Jonathan Crary's 24-7, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep. And his argument is, you know, that sleep is the last vestige of anti-capitalist practice. An anti capitalist time and that it is in danger of going extinct, of becoming, you know, completely recuperated by capitalism. And he's really looking at the ways that for workers to sleep less and less is very much the agenda of capitalism. To someday abolish sleep is a kind of false utopian capitalist horizon, a complete insomniac state of 24 7 production and circulation ongoing work and consumption. And so I'm really interested in that. I also just got the book that Trisha Hersey wrote, and she's started the nap ministry. Her book is called Rest is Resistance. I'm pretty interested in, in that project in particular. as They're playful, they're using comedy. I don't think that the project itself is like coded in comedy, but the ways in which that project is playfully trying to take back sleep. And to claim sleep as a an important collective practice of resistance is really, really interesting to me. So I also just like sleep. Laziness and leisure have become so troubled by these work paradigms of the last 50 years, especially, right, where, as with play, forms of laziness and leisure are still kind of subject to becoming sites of work or becoming commodified in some ways, right? And so sleep is a really powerful, amazing way of orienting towards this, right? Because it's something we, we all need. It's a necessity to us and our survival, right? And if you take it away from us, you know, we will go insane. We will be tortured. It will be, it will be horrible. And that is actually, you know, the agenda of capitalist work, right? So, yeah, sleep, should sleep as much as possible. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> Work for me last night. I was reading this. I was making some notes, refreshing for our interview. <laughs> and uh, I got to the end of the book and it was talking about how great sleep is. And I'm someone who routinely, I do what's called revenge bedtime procrastination mm. sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, where <laughs> using using the early hours of sleep to create space for myself and the things that I want to do and to Mm -hmm. be alone without work. Mm -hmm. This is a tendency that I have, Mm -hmm. but reading this, I was like, oh yeah, no, I should be a comrade. (laughs) I should more fully commit to the revolution and go to bed right now because everyone else relies on me being well rested. And Mm. it is actually, I ended up falling asleep without setting an alarm by accident but because I went to bed early enough, I woke up before our interview and I didn't accidentally stand you up by being too tired and sleeping through it because I followed the advice of the book. That's a true story. Oh, that's great. I actually, I woke up with like a half hour notice. I was like, holy crap, I didn't set an alarm. Too close for comfort. Don't let this happen again. But it's because I went to bed that it ended up being okay.
2: That's well, good. I mean, the irony <laughs> for me is I am an insomniac. I have a lot of trouble sleeping and well, maybe it isn't ironic. It's exactly why I'm interested <laughs> in sleep yeah, is something that that's I why you have a lot of difficulty doing. And especially when I became a parent, I started waking up earlier and earlier. And much of my book was actually written in the middle of the night. <laughs> so it's a way of me dealing with, with that problem. But I would wake up I still wake up around two or three but especially during the earlier days of the pandemic I would wake up and just be filled with dread and go and stare at my kid while they're sleeping and just like having all of these Yeah, I was just really scared, like so many people and so going and sitting down in my kitchen and writing actually felt really healing. But I was probably sleeping like four or five hours a night for a pretty long time there and Still have a lot of problems with it. so (laughs) Something I have to work on every day, too. Well,
1: yeah, that resonates with me also. (laughs) I do a lot of uh, self-directed work at night. Yeah. (laughs) The world is so quiet, right? Like, there's no... You don't get notifications. Even if you do check your notifications, there's nothing there. It's like this respite from the 24-7 work world so i can finally get some work done
2: (laughs) i know yeah it does feel like that yeah there is that i have to grapple with the fact that like what am i doing i'm working on my anti-work project in the middle of the night (laughs) (laughs) but critical negation i'm trying to work my way out of a lot of this for myself but kind of it is a trap it is a trap i'm writing in and so it is a it's a matter of kind of finding a critical approach right
1: And finally, there's a third proposal. And maybe I'll let you introduce this one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll just hand it off. There's a third proposal. What is it? It's called Blob.
2: (laughs) And I'm trying to figure out, I mean, I know I've written about it, but I'm trying to figure out how to speak on my feet about Blob. But it's a metaphor I take from Maria Bamford, who was using this game at the end of her stand-up special old baby. And I got to see... Her kind of workshopping that special, I don't know, sometime before it came out. And at the end of her show, she asks everybody to hold hands. She starts by finding somebody in the audience to grab onto. And she explains this this is a game, it's a shit game. Nobody's going to like this, but we're going to do it. So she grabs somebody in the audience, and then they need to grab somebody. And then we don't stop until everybody's in the blob. And as we do this, we're chanting one big blob, one big blob. And something happens. <laughs> it's almost like I'm describing you know, a psychedelic experience, but something does happen in this weird game experience where you're chanting this thing and holding hands with a stranger and knowing her stand up, you've been through this kind of Silly but powerful reflection on mental health and mental health struggles. And so for me, I had this really amazing moment that I couldn't quite, it was over, but it didn't quite leave me of being in a blob. And it was at a time when my best friend had died by suicide, and I was just dealing with a lot of grief and confusion and just heartache and to be immersed in this blob felt transcendent it resonates with moments i've had in crowds and taking to the streets with comrades occupying a university building with <laughs> with people with fellow workers and things like that you know but it was really interesting to me about this experience in Bamford's show was how she was commenting on On that experience as it was happening and then after. And her suggestion to the audience afterward was if we could just blob it for a while. And I really loved that (laughs) As as a suggestion. Right. And so that's as close as I get really to a utopian program in my book is, can we just blob it for a while? I find these moments to blob and to use those blob moments to see the world differently and inhabit it differently. And to also see, you know, the lie that is capitalist totality, you know, the sense that we're all living in, that this is how it has to be and how it will always be. Any questioning of that will inevitably lead to heartache and pain, right? So I think blobbing is the beautiful metaphor for me of that kind of communist or I towards the end of the book, I'm like really thinking about kind of oceanic quality to laughter, to revolutionary laughter of being in a crowd and laughing together and what that reveals to us experientially. So I'm sure you understand that I felt I was going out on a limb with Blob, but I hope that, you know, whatever you took from it had some of that in it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think there is something profound about The experiment that Bamford does with the blob. Yeah. And it really, it really reminds me of an experience that I had of this sort of kind of like transcendent group experience. I was in, I was at the Institute for Social Ecology Summer Intensive, which is a multi day anarchist, Marxist ecology thing where they had speakers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was great. The speeches were great. I was making great notes. And I felt very rigid and like revolutionary, like, (laughs) serious uptight and then we did they had an optional theater of the oppressed okay which is like a it was kind of like on the edge of improv Mm -hmm. and it involved a lot of people like moving silly and talking silly and engaging in these group play rituals together. So it was optional Mm -hmm. because it's obviously not as very serious and revolutionary.
2: And you can't force someone to do that either. (laughs) right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
1: But there was this part where it's like, okay, now we're going to make weird, embarrassing sounds. And we're like going in a circle and everyone's doing their like weird squawk. (laughs) And something about the overall experience of that shared vulnerability of like, okay, now we're all going to play this dumb, useless game that makes us all look like fools. Mm -hmm. And we're all going to commit to it in a circle. And committing to it, something about it, I don't know, I had such a profound vibe shift, I kind of like lost myself in it. I ended up kind of breaking the rules at one point, because I started improvising without thinking about it, because I've done (laughs) improv for years. Mm -hmm. I started acting like it was improv when we were actually playing some other game. But yeah, that experience, I just had such like a pep in my step afterwards, it totally changed the vibe of the rest of the conference. And it was like, That was actually when I started thinking for the first time about how comedy could be part of a revolutionary practice. And I was like, okay, before we have democratic meetings, we should all loosen up a bit first and play a few games.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. Incorporating it to think of comedy not as this like privilege, which is what stand up makes it seem like, right? This kind of privileged activity for a capital A, you know, artist or capital C comic, right? You know, as something that we're all capable of doing and that we all actually do and that we we can do intentionally and we can do in a way that's like a kind of political collective activity in our everyday lives. That we don't need Netflix, that we don't need to buy tickets to Jerry Seinfeld, right? Like, but we have this in our own hands and we can take that. And I, I love that. And I love when I've been in political groups or meetings where we were kind of, whether it's just like a, a warm up check in or something like that, but where we're able to, to bring that energy into our, into the space with us, right? It really helps us be able to loosen our imaginations and to open us up to what feels at least unimaginable and impossible.
1: This has been a great conversation. I kind of wish we could keep going for hours and hours, but sometimes good things they must come to an end and by ending they're even better for it. <laughs> 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 to keep it complete and uh, I feel like mm-hmm. we covered a lot of really interesting stuff here today. It was a, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Do you want to give one last pitch for your book and tell people where they can pick it up? Oh, or is yeah, that too absolutely. embarrassing?
2: <laughs> no. Well, you can just, <laughs> I'm always very happy to promote my press, Common Notions Press, which is a great independent political press based in Philadelphia and Brooklyn. So um, number one thing I would say is if you can become a supporter of that press, you can get books in the mail every month that are really awesome. Um, but mine is one of them and it's called Comedy Against Work, Utopian Longing and Dystopian Times. You can get it anywhere, I guess, that books are sold. <laughs> but I would prefer you know, doing it on non-Amazon websites if possible.
1: Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. Yeah. Really great. Really fascinating book. As soon as I saw the title, I was like, this book is up my alley. And if you in the <laughs> audience have a similar feeling of this book is up my alley, then I definitely enthusiastically reman- recommend checking it out. We really sort of scratched the surface here in a lot of ways of <laughs> some of the arguments and ideas that go into this reflection on this intersection between comedy work and anti-work and utopianism. So I endorse it. And yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. This is a great conversation.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Sean. It was awesome to talk to you.
1: And I'll just pop out this tape. Well, that was a fun interview. Good book. The three things at the end. I think there's really something interesting play. We obviously, we love play on the show.
0: We play around a bit we planted that flag before we like play. I really like the idea that Madeline said early on in the interview, I feel like it's a really potent way to talk about the connection between comedy and utopia is that comedy puts you into the way I think the way she put it was puts you into contact with the possibility of other worlds. Because when you're joking around or like acting as if something else in order to make a fun, like, or when you're using comedy as a critique of something, all of these things kind of point at maybe there are possibilities other than what is. Like, there's a way that being playful with your words and joking around kind of implies that other things are possible.
1: Laughing at the absurdity of your workplace or school is an acknowledgement that an alternative is possible.
0: Right, yeah, and she even points it out with, like, her parenting and, like, how being able to joke around about bedtime with her kid helps to kind of, like, at the very least, make the power imbalance something that, like, you both are free to talk about and, like, kind of poke at and question this kind of, like, freeing aspect of comedy pointing towards what could be.
1: Sleep? I mean, who doesn't love sleep? Especially in the morning. At night, it's not always as fun, but in the morning, it's amazing. Um, I was sure to remember morning sleep when I go to bed. Like, yeah, I'm going to go to bed and get that extra morning sleep where it's like, mm, mm, mm.
0: I'm a fan of night sleep. I like night sleep. Once there's like sun outside and so it's like harder to sleep. So at night, it's better for me. I don't mean to judge your sleep. Oh, yeah. But- no,
1: I, no, not at all. No, I, I don't feel offended. No matter how judgmental the comment was, <laughs> for being honest. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I find, I find going to bed is like a chore and getting out of bed is also a chore. Whereas I, if I remember not wanting to do the second chore, it can help me to do the first chore. You know, you sort of save yourself a chore in the end.
0: Right, right, yeah.
1: And Blob, I think Blob is really interesting. Blob, we could almost do an entire discussion on by itself, like the the intersecting ideas. like part of it is sort of agreeing to do something arbitrary together in a way that creates a group cohesion that involves like also lowering your defenses at the same time. like I, th- that combination of things is I think what resonates with me about the idea of it of like this what could be a transcendent experience about doing something like that a sort of transcendent goofy collectiveness. I think is a great prescription.
0: I definitely have had experiences like that, where it's kind of putting yourself in situations where normal social mores are violated in a way that feels freeing and open and not like restricting or like, I don't know what's going on, but kind of like, oh, like we could be interacting with other people in a different way. And like, even something as like mild as like everyone hold hands in one big chain, like move through the audience in a big chain and like look at your neighbor and talk to them. Being something that kind of loosens up the seeming rigidity of the, the way that we interact with each other, creating difference in the way that you reproduce the sort of cycles of normalcy is, yeah, it's great. It's an experience I've had before. And I feel like there's a real like sort of like a good prefigurative space I think should evoke that feeling in people of like, hey, can, you know, we we can do things differently. Yeah, it's like record
1: scratching your experience. The, yeah. the the reality tunnel that you inhabit, all of the, some of your experiences, it's like it's like scratching the record. It's just experience this wildly different thing. That's kind of how I felt at Occupy at first with like the general assemblies back in 2011 where there's, we're doing face-to-face democracy in person. It wasn't like oh, I want to do this forever and live in a face-to-face democracy society. That was totally not on my mind. But the feeling of like, feeling like you were doing something differently and everyone playing according to these new game rules that most people were just introduced to and just playing faithfully according to them in good faith in the attempt to like govern the camp and yeah, figure out our decisions. own values together. Yeah. yeah. There was something really inspiring about that on a more fundamental level than having a meeting in a park, which was sort of what was going on on one level.
0: Yeah, there's like the intellectual level of it. Like, oh, this is an interesting way to make decisions together. But yeah, I think the experiential part of it is like this exciting, freeing, like... That's another thing about improv, too. And I know I, know I can be such an improv
1: freak, and I'm probably so annoying to people who aren't into improv for whatever reason. But improv is this space where you all where there's just these different little game rules, these little worlds where there's game rules. So like questions only where you're improvising, you can only ask each other questions. And there's this funny dynamic there that you sort of notice as you play it is that when someone asks you a question, you want to answer it so bad. So when you're freely joking around playing a character and you can only ask questions, getting in the headspace of really only asking questions is legitimately hard. So people always or tripping up on it accidentally. And it's fun. You create different, but that's just an example of like, there's thousands of different sort of improv games. And some of them are more about the performance side of like, how can you put on the best performance? But a lot of it is also about the participatory side of like, how does it ex- feel to be in a scene and play together? And like, it creates these spaces of play and rules. And I, I feel like there's so much potential there, not just in I think on one level, helping people to loosen up and get outside themselves, not take themselves so seriously, and like prevent this culture of like political self seriousness that um, everywhere I've seen it in any sort of real life political context has been absolutely detrimental to the people involved around them. As over seriousness is not uh, very helpful, and I think improv can help soften that to some level. The right kind of improv at the right time loosening up before getting into this ser- like stretching intellectual stretching before you get into the serious conversation. But also just the general premise of creating game rules and ways of relating to each other that's different. I think that's this is this is maybe an esoteric interpretation of the blob idea, but this is what starts coming to mind uh, as we talk about
0: it over time. Cool. Well, we're out of time, folks. <laughs> uh, yeah, we gotta we gotta get some sleep. That's what always happens at the end of our podcast episodes. We turn the mics off and Get in put one on big our sleeping bed hats. Our... hats and
1: we do some honk me, 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 me's.
0: Change out of those fits into pajamas. Get the um,
1: candle, the candlestick, and uh, oh, yeah. use it to walk around the house and navigate in the nightgown. Yep. So we've got this um, last tape. Do you want to pop it in, sort of our closing arguments? Uh resolving and finishing another episode of seriously wrong which is made possible by the generous patreon community at patreon.com slash seriously wrong
0: yeah let's wrap it up with a tape why not who's stopping us just slide this out of its little sleeve
1: uh and pop it in Does remember tapes folks from the 90s i do i sure do
0: don't know about these kids today they remember
1: no who probably does is witty observation.
0: oh he remembers tapes he remembers tapes he sold a lot of tapes
1: and i'll press play today on wrong world news the children of the world have mysteriously stopped playing no one knows why and it's causing massive effects across the global
0: economy That's right, stone-faced children around the world are absolutely refusing to play, and scientists have linked this phenomenon to a general degradation of the societal infrastructure of the world. That's right, the trains are not running on time, the electrical grid is browning out, planes aren't taking off, and the sidewalks are crumbling.
1: Study after study is showing that there's a direct causal relationship between the children ceasing their play and the crumbling of infrastructure and social relationships across our society. That we know for sure. Yeah, as far as what's causing the link, difficult. And what's causing the children to stop playing, that's another big question mark over scientists' heads, they tell us.
0: Yeah, I even know anecdotally at home, my kid, they're sitting on the carpet, laying out a million toys in front of them saying, "Here, please play." What games do you want? You want to be more natural, want to do anything. Just won't won't play, won't even move. They'll eat, poop in their diaper, all those other things babies such children do, but won't play. It's disturbing. My producer tells us
1: that people have been hitting us up on socials at Wrong World News and sharing stories. This is from Therese123. She says, my two boys have stopped playing for six days now. This is so unlike them. What is causing this? And what is the relationship to the secondary things in the economy that have been so proven by scientists? So thank you for the question. We don't know. We don't know. These are the exact questions that scientists are trying to uh, ask, and they keep asking it, and then the answer's, I don't know.
0: But there is one person who says that he knows what is causing the problem and how to fix it. President fascist leader Witty Observation has announced a press conference where he will be explaining the launch of a new program that he says will make the children pick up those toys once again kids suck. They do.
1: They do. Kids suck. The one time you want them to play, you can't get them to to play. That's why I've always said, I've always said this. Kids suck. What? I'll say it. I'll say it openly. You can't trust these kids as far as you can throw them. They're stinky. I hate them. I hate them. So I'm launching into action with a Serious proposal, and and uh, I've double and triple checked this with all the top experts. We think we found the root of the problem: why the children have stopped playing. They're lazy. They're lazy kids, and I don't. I take no pleasure in saying that. The children of our nation should not be lazy. They should be industrious. But even play is a type of work. And kids these days, they're vegging out. At best, you can get them to lie around all day, stuff in their face, full of crumbs, full of peanut butter getting sticky fingers on the iPad, parents know what I'm talking about, stinking up the place, you're lucky if you can get them to play for a minute, minute and a half. And so what we've found and what, what I believe uh, is that too much sleep is causing them to degenerate. Now, what's lazier than sleep? You know, when I was coming up in the comedy clubs, I wasn't always president for life. I put in my time, I'll say that. Sleeping on couches, you know, I was working odd jobs to make ends meet you know this it wasn't handed to me and one of the things that I did is I cut down my sleep to four hours a night that gave me more time to prepare my comedic material about service staffs failures Uh, but it also gave me time to pick up odd jobs hit more open mics and really focus on my craft so I want to see the same thing from our children to cut down their sleep so we're going to be stopping nap time for all children going forward, and we're also gonna be enforcing a shorter sleep schedule for everyone and enforce sleep deprivation. First, cutting their sleep down to six hours and then eventually down to four. It'll be mandatory to check your phone with full blue light right before you go to bed. And we think that all these factors working together is gonna kickstart the kids out of laziness, get them playing again, getting them engaged in the hard work of play, the hard work of play that makes our society work in some sort of not fully understood, but directly causal way. And if that measure doesn't work, of course, then we'll have to find other ways to punish everyone in a way that helps reconnect children with their love of play so the trains run on time again, clocks tick forward in ways that are predictable and remedies to all of the various problems we've been
0: facing recently. (laughs) he said it, he said it. You know, he's not afraid to tell it like it is. As a newscaster, I just have to say that was so right on the money and so funny too. It's funny because it's true. And he's, uh, I I feel like comedians get closer to the truth with what they do than a lot of those uh, so-called academics and whatnot. And I believe that President Observation is a modern day philosopher. And I, for one, am fully on board with his plan. I think it's gonna work. It got him where he is, so why wouldn't it work on everybody else? Keller, this reporter, relieved on behalf of myself and all of the increasingly desperate people in our great nation. Hey, fellow citizen. It's a horrible, kind of foggy, dreary day out, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I know my burlap patch outfit is completely soaked.
0: Yeah. yeah, It's cold. I got holes in my shoes. Ever since the kids stopped playing, just the holes just... And all my clothes, it's so... The machinery
1: horrible. to make new shoes, it doesn't...
0: Yeah, it won't go. It doesn't
1: work like it used
0: to. Yeah, things are rough all over. its uh, I've been living out of my car, actually, you know, ever since... Yeah, me too. Yeah, you have band Observation band living in houses and apartments, because, you know, that's how he, he came up, working out of a car, so everybody's got to...
1: Yeah, give everyone the road comic experience, and the kids right. might start playing again.
0: I mean, just because that worked for him in the 90s doesn't mean it solves everything, right? But Yeah, well, I'm
1: working this new job, but they won't pay me until I put in my time, because there's this, like, new statute or something signed by Supreme Leader observation where he's saying that you know you can basically not pay people for a really long time for them working because they need to put in their time he says that's right. how it works in the entertainment industry and yeah. that's what made him such a great leader so that's why i'm wearing the burlap and i'm cooking uh, this is actually a can of rejected beans so, these are the beans that are too misshapen to be in a regular bean can.
0: Yeah, I hear you about the work stuff. It's horrible. The new corporate culture mandates he's been putting down, where, you know, bosses and em- customers and other employees are encouraged to kind of make fun of each other, abuse each other, bully each other, uh, heckle one another, it's called. It's to help them toughen up and get a thick skin, build character and stuff. It's. Uh, when it first came in, I thought it might be pretty funny, but honestly it just hurts my feelings and I'm sad every day that I'm at work now. Yeah. I got sent to
1: human resources because I didn't laugh at a joke about someone that I, I don't know. I just felt bad for them. I just, you shouldn't harp on them for so long. I don't know. I didn't laugh. So I got a strike on my record. So.
0: Right. Oh yeah. the not laughing at officially funny joke stuff. It's too much. It's too invasive. I heard witty observation, was actually having models developed of tiny little robotic fingers everybody would be outfitted with that would tickle you if you're not laughing at it when you're supposed to. I I don't like that. I yeah, I'm I'm concerned about the mechanics wing
1: of the Observations uh, right. child playing policy. I heard that they're developing like cyborg marionette strings that can forcibly move children around, like a unmanned aerial drone and. Woody observation said that it's their last option, that it's the last feasible way to get the economy moving again, to get children playing again, is actually to force them to play using cyborg robotic implements,
0: even against their will. Right, but yeah. Will that even work, though? I feel like scientifically we don't know what the connection is, but to me, uh, if the kid's heart's not in it, if they're just being marionetted around, I don't even know if that'll help the economy. But... No, I
1: agree with you. The kid's heart's got to be in it. I mean maybe this is just you know proletarian folk knowledge that we all kind of agree on but it's not proven but yeah I think the kid's heart's got to be in it. Yeah, it's it's clear to me anyway. You know, there was a comedy show the other night. There was five comedians. They're making jokes about how the kid's heart has to be in it. How there's a big issue with this whole plan. You oh, know, so this
0: was like not an uh, official comedy underground, like an underground, underground, yeah. Killjoy so, comedy circuit. People were yeah.
1: laughing. Like people were really. There was almost no applause all night because everyone was laughing, laughing too so hard. hard. Yeah,
0: to even clap. Um, I, but yeah, I know. No, they, they
1: were arrested. Um, they were all right. arrested for Killjoy. For being buzzkills and yeah they they're officially charged with telling it like it isn't.
0: Right, but Um, yeah, we all know what that means. It's telling it like witty observation doesn't want you to. Yeah, I think they were telling
1: it like it is, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. I think in a world uh in a world like ours, Killjoys are the closest to the truth, not the official comedians. No, they're modern day philosophers. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, it's just, this doesn't feel like the free-spirited 90s to no. Me. no,
1: I don't remember the 90s being like this at all, and I'm too young to remember the 90s, but my idea of the 90s, is everyone laughing, having fun.
0: Look, I was a kid in the 90s, and I played. I was playing in the 90s, so that's just such a big difference yeah, between when you see the 90s those and now.
1: Glass-eyed children not moving, yeah. not playing. Oh, it's creepy. Their heart's just not in it. Even when you hand them toys.
0: Yeah, even if you force them to bounce the ball, it's kind of just like robotic and they're staring straight ahead and not, yeah.
1: That's what the 90s was like. The opposite of
0: that, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, like fun bouncing balls, like laughing and, yeah. Genuine laughing, not just like a physical reaction to being tickled by a robot finger. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, knock, knock, knock. Mr. Observation, sir. President, uh, leader Observation. Yeah, come, in, come in, flunky. Thank you, sir. Yes, I am.
1: Um, nice haircut. Did, did you say, give me the full clown?
0: Yes, I did, sir. Just as you instructed, sir. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so, as you know, we've had everyone fitted with the marionette cyborg strings, sir. And they're performing all the actions that we programmed to. Everyone in society is now perfectly in, in tune on a electrically powered schedule that you've designed, but uh, things are still not working well. The The children have been playing, but the trains aren't running on time. The planes aren't taking off. The infrastructure is still crumbling. The clocks are still ticking oddly. It's um, best we can figure, sir, is that it's because their hearts aren't in it. All
1: right. Well, uh, we need some sort of techno Connection. Can we maybe make a circuit
0: to their heart? Get get the guys on that. Uh, the scientists, yeah, they've already been on that. But the issue with that is that they haven't had any creative ideas for months now. It's part of the general degradation of society. The once the kids stopped playing, the scientists stopped having creative ideas in order to fix these problems, and. Uh, the marionette machines it's working but it's starting to overload the they say that it's overheating and it could break down at any minute at which point people would be free to do anything they wanted the whole plan could fall apart well if we if we can get their heart in
1: it then the children will play the scientists will get more ideas people will laugh at my jokes again without us needing to get them with the tickle machine so I'm not seeing any way out of this unless Feasibly, unless we can,
0: you know, connect get their the children's hearts to the
1: get the get their heart into the play. Right.
0: Okay, sir. I'll uh, I'll yell at everyone more. Try and make it happen. But uh, can, can I just say that you look so tired? It's I know it's not my place, but have you slept? Uh, yeah, I have.
1: It's been a few days, but uh, I mean, makes you work harder, right?
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what you always say. That's yeah. what I always say. Yeah. So, okay. Well, um, huh. You, what, what is that? I am not sure. It. Uh, what are the little
1: people up to now?
0: Whatever it is, it wasn't programmed into the machine. Huh, it seems to be coming from the village. Right, maybe if we open the window, we'll be able to hear it better. It's oh, one big blob. Oh, they're all holding hands.
1: Wouldn't that be slightly sweaty and uncomfortable? Do they even know the people they're holding hands with?
0: I, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's weird. That is definitely not. But, you know, there's something about it. It's kind of uh, kind of interesting. One big blob. One big blob. I don't know what they mean by that. No, me neither. It's really different from what they usually do, that's for sure. Yeah, it's different from what they've been told to do. Weird.
1: I guess it's just one of those things. Uh, so, grandson, the marionette machine got overheated and it was destroyed. And one by one, all across the land, people started blobbing instead. They stopped doing the work and started blobbing, doing something different and strange, opening up new and profound possibilities and that caused all the children to start playing again. Uh, Even Woody himself opened up a bit and allowed himself to play again for the first time in, in a long time. He stopped trying to control people, stopped trying to make everyone laugh at him through tickle machines and other elaborate plots to soothe his own ego, and stopped trying to control the outside world and make it a reflection of himself, and instead focused on what he actually loved about performing, the thing that brought him into art in the first place. And politically, he ceded control of the institutions of society to democratically run councils and confederation, and they reformed society into a library socialist layered direct democracy and uh, created the society that we have today. So that was all part of your grandpa's life. That's what happened eventually with witty Observation, the centrist mainstream 90s comedian come right wing 2020s comedian come fascist leader.
0: And uh, did Woody observation ever face justice for what he did?
1: Yeah, he committed crimes against humanity. Uh, he admitted yeah. su- such in the People's Court um, and uh, voluntarily served a prison sentence for the rest of his days. And he said he thought the process was fair, so he just willingly did that. After opening up a bit, processing some of his baggage, you know, playing more, goofing off a little more, not trying to control everything. He ended up in prison. He was quite happy with that. He he died. He's
0: dead now. He's been dead for quite some time. The end. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. Did it? Did that? That really all happen, Grandpa? Yeah, I'm leaving out some details, but it's a better. Yeah, but yes. And did the '90s ever come back? No, no, grandson. Because
1: the '90s never existed. What they were trying to reclaim, what they were trying to grasp was as much a feeling about how old they were at the time as it was about the characteristics of the society around them. There, there was no 90s to return to, and trying to seek a transcendent, beautiful past, like, for example, the 90s, is doomed to fail. It's, it's,
0: just, it's a road to failure. Okay, Grandpa. Thank you for finishing the story this time. Good night, grandson.